We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Let's turn our Bibles to Ezekiel 39, please, this morning. Ezekiel in chapter 39. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog. Now this version says the prince of Rosh, remember the chief prince, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name any more. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. And those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. They will not take wood from the field nor cut down any of the, from the forests because they will make fires with the weapons and they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillaged them, says the Lord God. It will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will obstruct travelers because there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore, they will call it the valley of Haman Gog, the, the multitude of Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying and they will gain renown for it on that day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land, and when anyone sees a man's bone, he shall set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. The name of the city will also be Hamona, thus they shall cleanse the land. And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come, gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them, fatlings of Bashan, you shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. 
You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men and with all the men of war, says the Lord God. I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord, their God, from that day forward. The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they all fell by the sword." According to their uncleannesses and according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. After they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness, unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, when they dwelt safely in their own land and no one made them afraid, When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations and also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any more, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God." Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew 18, please. Going to cut into the sermon series that I've been offering on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. Share with you this morning. It's good to see you, Mr. and Mrs. Lester. Younger Mr. Hunter. Good to see you, brother. No, it's not you, I'm sorry. You don't get the prominence this time. All right, Matthew uh, chapter 18. We have uh, treated in our study verses 15 to 17 of late, and I wanted to just touch on verses 18 to 20 briefly. We haven't addressed them in our extended uh, exposition of the passage, but just to run through that before we get to the section that I want to share this morning. And it's in verse 18 of chapter 18. After the Lord tells the church that if a brother who is unrepentant in sin refuses even to hear the church at that third step of the process that he lays out. He says, let him be to you, here's the fourth step, like a a heathen and a tax collector. So the the church is is recognizing there's something wrong with the brother or sister who's living in sin, and they are to treat him like that uh, tax collector or that pagan, that person who's outside of the church, because they are acting like that. And then he says in verse 18, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, verse 19, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. I think this verse can be misused in two ways. One is on the on the We can say maybe on the weak hand, the way that the verse might be used as well, whenever we get together and pray and two or three of us agree that God has has to answer the way that we agree about. Well, that's not necessarily the case because just because two or three of us say that we want something doesn't mean that God's going to give something. On the other hand, this can be used to overextend the authority of a church, and I think that's happened in large denominational 
churches in the world where they say, look, what the church says, that's the final word. And in fact, so final that we basically deliver to you what you need to believe from the, from the throne of our greatness and wherever the denominational headquarters are. Our brother knows exactly one example of what I'm talking about. Um, but pulling back from both of those extremes, we have to recognize that the uh, Lord here is teaching us that when a matter comes before the church, in the case of this kind of situation, and the church is saying, look, that is not permissible behavior unrepentant sin, whatever nature that sin is. It's not permissible behavior amongst the people of God. 1 Corinthians 5, for instance, there was a sin there that was not even acceptable among the Gentiles, I mean, among the unbelievers. They found it criminal. And they, in fact, still do today find that particular sin to be criminal in its nature. If the church doesn't do that, it's a shameful thing. But in in the case of Corinth, they were supposed to straighten that out. In this case here, what the Lord is saying, he says twice, you know, whatever you bind and loose will be bound and loosed in heaven. If you agree on earth concerning anything, it will be done for them. This, this idea that the, the church does have some authority, it has some weight that must be adhered to, that must be heeded, that's very serious. You know, if the church people are telling you that you're out of line, you know, don't just do this and say, I'm not going to listen. Okay, but you know what? God is saying the same thing that the church is saying. In fact, the way I see this, God is speaking really through the church and telling you the present application of the word of God to your situation is you're out of line and you need to get straightened back out again. So, Don't take what a good church says lightly. Don't take what it says lightly. Uh, You might feel like you know better, but you better be careful. If the wisdom of the church is telling you that you're a little off base, then you need to perk up the ears and say, yeah, I, I better humble myself. Very important. Then we come to verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy and seven. I'm going to read it that way. Seventy times and seven more. I'll explain that in a moment. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, I didn't, I didn't go by uh, you know, and look online to see what the price of a talent of gold is and multiply it out for you. And I just put, I think, $10 million or something in the notes from the last time that I worked through this. But as he was not able to pay, verse 25 says, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, hundred days' wages, so I put $30,000. Maybe that's a little too much or too little, but you get the idea. It's a pretty substantial sum of money. 
still. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Sound familiar? And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they went they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then the master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So, last verse says, My heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Wow. That's a mouthful. The parable starts, of course, in verse 23, but the introduction in 21 and 22 is critical to the passage, and 35 is the bookend that closes the lesson. Peter's question was about forgiving. How forgiving should I be toward people who sin against me? Peter obviously intended his question to be general in the sense that it applies to everyone, not just himself. So we might as well put ourselves in Peter's place and, and pretend we're the ones asking the question. That's, in effect, what's happening. Peter's suggestion was seven times, seven occurrences. Now, that seems like quite a lot. Uh, you know, you would think, well, in a day or a week or ever or whatever, at least someone familiar, not familiar with the way of Christ, seven might seem like a long time. Look, you know, after the second or third, you're treading on thin ice. Fourth, fifth, and sixth, you know, you're sinking to the bottom. There's no ice left. No more with me, you say. Uh, you know, the person's a nuisance. You probably feel like you, you know, like he should be pushed out of your life or treated, quote unquote, like he deserves. You know, he deserves that right, treatment in our flesh. Now, it appears from other places in the New Testament that Peter may have been generous compared to some of his contemporaries, like the Pharisees. You know, the, uh, in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal, he goes off. He's, he's really insulted his father. There's no question about that. He's insulted the family name. He's made one huge mistake, one huge sin. And he runs off and he wastes all of his goods and then he comes back and seeks forgiveness from his father. And the Pharisees are upset about that. In the early part of Luke 15, they were mad that Jesus was spending time with tax collectors and sinners. You can't spend time with them. They're unclean. They're dirty. And so the man, young man comes back and the father lavishes upon him wonderful forgiveness. And the Pharisees, pictured by the older brother in the story, remember him? He was angry. Uh, you never did anything for me and all of that. And the Lord trying to teach us about the right response and the wrong response to uh, the matter of forgiveness. Now, uh, actually several uh, interpreters have pointed out that the rabbis taught that you only had to forgive three times on the basis of Amos 1, 3, and 6, they think. The, the fourth offense brought God's wrath, and there is no forgiveness left by that point. You know, I'm, I'm, you ought to be very uh, immediately 
suspect if somebody's putting a mathematical kind of formula or number on like things like forgiveness. You know, the third time, three strikes and you're out. Fourth time, you're done. Uh, you know, if you have, a, I heard this recently, unbelievably. If you, if you have this kind of intention to do something and then you don't, then it counts for like 10 times the merit. It, there's, there's like strange formulas, you know, that people have in their mind. Where do they get this? If God treated us like three times and you're done, well, then it would be impossible for us to be saved, like we said this morning, right? It would be utterly impossible. I mean, we had, we had three sins before we even knew what sin was or had any cl- clue about it. Um, how exactly we could apply this you know, fourth offense rule in our personal interactions is not very clear. A limited forgiveness like that is nothing like what God is like nor what, for, what he wishes for us to be like. Now, I, I wanted to cl- clarify and correct the misunderstanding that you know, we might have that, well, this happens, it shouldn't happen, but it does happen. Like, you know, all Jewish people must be like Pharisees. Well, they weren't. I mean, Jesus was not. Paul was not. Uh, the disciples of Jesus were not. Anybody who followed Jesus as a disciple was not. Um, I thought it'd be helpful to replicate a bit of their teaching here, quoting from their Talmud. Listen to this. All who act mercifully, i.e. forgivingly, toward their fellow creatures will be treated mercifully by heaven. And all who do not act mercifully toward their fellow creatures will not be treated mercifully by heaven. If the injured party refuses to forgive, even when the sinner has come before him three times in the presence of others and asks for forgiveness, then he is in turn deemed to have sinned. He is called achzari, cruel. The unforgiving man is not the seed of Abraham, since one of the distinguishing marks of all Abraham's descendants is that they are forgiving. The quality of forgiveness was one of the gifts God bestowed on Abraham and his seed. Uh, interesting thoughts there, isn't it? Aren't there? The, the Talmud text provides the opportunity for us to illustrate a truth that, which even those who reject Christ understand under the effects of common grace, a, a person who has offended another should ask for forgiveness. But how hard is it for us to admit that we're wrong and humble ourselves even to our spouses or children or those close to us? Not only must we forgive when we're wronged, but we must seek forgiveness when we are the wrongdoer, to not do so as a sin. And then we also see that this statement here reflects some other biblical teaching, for instance, about judgment being without mercy to those who are without mercy. You remember that? James and elsewhere in the Bible. If you have no mercy, then don't expect God to show you mercy. Why would you do that and be inconsistent? James 2, Matthew 5, Proverbs 21 teach us that. I'll let you look those verses up there in your notes there. It's also interesting that the statement recognizes in some fashion that not all who are of Israel are Israel, but only those of the faith of Abraham. If the people, of Ab- the people descended from Abraham don't behave like he did spiritually, then they don't really belong to him. And that's a basic teaching in the book of Romans, isn't it? Not all Israel, not all who are of Israel are true Israel or share the faith of their father Abraham. It says nothing, my friends, about the church, please. Don't even go there, okay? It's limited to those who are of Israel, but not all of them share the faith of their forefather Abraham. The church is another matter, okay? But 
In any case, uh, the person, uh, the, the unforgiving man, here they, they talk, talk about, is thus a sinner, just as the parable in verse 32 calls the unforgiving man, what, look at verse 32. You wicked servant. You wicked servant. That's what it is like for somebody who's unforgiving. Now, the verb forgive is used in verses 21 at the beginning and 35 at the end, and then twice in the middle, just those four times. And your translation may have it in a little different format, like cancel the debt in the case of the parable because it was a debt forgiveness kind of situation. But the Greek dictionary defines forgive this way, to release from a legal or moral obligation, to release from a consequence, to cancel, to remit, to pardon. When you forgive your parent, child, spouse, fellow church member, friend, co-worker, you are releasing them from a debt owed. You're pardoning them. You are canceling a moral obligation or a legal obligation. You're canceling consequence to them. Think about that. That's what forgiveness is. Do you stand ready to forgive those who wrong you? To forgive, when I looked up forgive, I just read you the definition, right? That's what I found in the Greek dictionary. To release from legal or moral obligation or consequence, to cancel, to remit, to pardon. Forgive does not mean to give the silent treatment to someone. The definition in the dictionary does not say give them the cold shoulder. It does not say make them pay. Forgiveness is not to be angry for a while until it wears off or to hold a grudge against somebody for years and years. Forgiveness does not mean to criticize the sinner to other people so as to maximize damage to him and to make myself look like a righteous person somehow. Forgiveness means none of those things. It means to cancel, to release, to pardon, to permit someone to not have to pay the consequence of the sin that they have done. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven is how my translation has it. The Lord rejected the seven number suggested by Peter. That's far too stingy. In fact, to put any number specifically on it is stingy. Our Lord gave instead the, an answer of 77 because of the repetition of the number seven and the fact that the Lord takes Peter's number and greatly multiplies it. It's obvious to me that he's speaking figuratively here. He's not actually saying 77, nor is he saying 70 times seven, 490. Neither is the case. Now, why do I say 77? Well, the King James and the New American Standard translate the phrase as 70 times seven. Now, that's like a very literal translation of the Greek text. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give them props for that. But it doesn't make sense in English. The Greek phrase is made up of two words. 70 occurrences and then the number seven. 
the 70 times, when you have the word times, is not multiplied by, let me back up. When I say he did something 70 times, that means he did something 70 occurrences, right? The word times there does not mean times tables. That's where we've gone a little bit off. We say the word times and we say 70 times 7, it must be 490. It's not that kind of times table times. It is occurrences. So, And that's what the word actually means. So it's more appropriate to translate it 70 times plus 7 more or just 77 occurrences or 70 occurrences and 7 more occurrences. There's no difference then in the teaching of the passage as to whether it's 77 or 490. Now, don't, don't hear me to say that there's no difference between 77 and 490. I have advanced math enough to know that. There's no difference in the reference that the passage is meaning. It's saying a lot, like beyond count. How many, I mean, you know, unless you pull the black book out of your pocket and say 67, 68, 69, and by the time they get to 78, their name is like blacked out, you know, it's crossed out of the book. That's not the case. Nobody keeps, should keep track like that. His meaning is there's no limit to the number of times you forgive someone. Here's a paraphrase of his words. Peter, it's ten times more than you think. And then even beyond that, it's unlimited, is what our Lord is teaching. The attitude of a true forgiver is that you don't keep track of sins done against you. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no little black book or any Excel spreadsheet in our mind or anywhere else. Not incidentally, the attitude of the true Christian is that you truly forgive those who have wronged you every time. Contrast this with the vengeful spirit of Lamech. You remember Lamech speaking to his more than one wife, and he, he, uh, he was struck, and he struck down a young man that had offended him, and he took his 77-fold revenge, he said. That's the opposite of what the Lord is saying here. Also, this instruction does not undo what is taught in verses 15 to 20 about this unrepentant sinning brother as if we just have to be nice and forgiving and cannot hold anyone, anyone to account for their unrepentant sin. That's still true and still must be held. And also Peter's question is, an, is in an individual person-to-person context where the prior text is talking about an unrepentant sin that has been elevated to the level of the church family. So these are two different scenarios here. But still, forgiveness does apply. Look, Paul said in 2 Corinthians to the, about the brother who had repented, receive him back and give him forgiveness. The whole church give him forgiveness. Otherwise, he'd be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow and he'd be distressed and disturbed and discouraged in his walk with the Lord. We have got to receive people in to the church. You know, the, the world wants to cancel people who make a mistake, who do something wrong. Does the church cancel people? No, we don't know anything about cancellation but it's become an industry for people in this world. Cancel them. Their social credit is too low. Get rid of them. 
Uh, what about the story uh, that the Lord gives here? This is verses 23 to 34. It's a rather lengthy story. We're familiar with how it goes. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is, is like a certain king, just as he did in prior parables. The, the ethic of the coming kingdom is shown here by way of example. And since we in the tr- true church are citizens of that kingdom, this is how we should behave now ahead of its inauguration. We shouldn't say, well, I'll start behaving that way once the Lord comes back. That doesn't make any sense. We'll behave now that way. So the man owed 10,000 talents, a tremendous debt, uh, millions of dollars, if not more than that. This servant was probably the, the governor of some state or something, some province to have that kind of access to, to finances. Uh, he didn't return a loan properly or not paid what was owed. Um, initially, the king was going to sell him off. That's how you dealt with debts. In fact, I got an interesting question on the website I should answer tonight. I've just thought of it. The question was, did God ordain slavery? Or was it just a, a kind of outgrowth of the sinful human condition? We've talked about that at some length here in the church before. But, you know, God did ordain people who had debts to go into a, a debt servitude to, right. to pay it back. In other words, you can't just borrow and not repay. What does the Bible call that? The wicked borrow and do not repay. See? It doesn't matter if you, you know, layer it under you know, the Fed and, and a few layers of inflationary monetary policy and all of that stuff. If you borrow and do not repay, it's evil. You know, you hear on the radio, if you have $10,000 or more in credit card debt, did you know you can settle that debt for less money than you owe? Maybe I should go be an announcer on those commercials. I've got it all memorized. So many times, that's sin. That's, you know what that's called? Stealing. You bought $10,000 of stuff on your credit card, and then you're going to pay $5,000 for settle it for five? You just stole from the people that you bought from. And we think that's Okay. That's not okay. That's evil. You, you know, the borrower servant to the lender. It's always going to be the case. We sell all our debt to somebody else. Guess what? They're going to come calling at some point. Well, in any case, the guy, the king was going to sell him off and make him pay his debt. But and, and that probably wasn't going to be as much as the debt. But at least the master, you know, could get the satisfaction of getting his pound of flesh out of the guy that cheated him, right? But he wasn't that kind of master. He forgave the whole debt, wrote it off when he was begged to do so, and considered it a bad debt. He wasn't going to pursue it. Um, He was very merciful, probably not too hard up for money if he could forgive a debt like that. But that doesn't mean that the fellow doesn't owe him. You know, we can't just say, well, that man's rich, so I'm just going to steal from the rich because, you know, I'm, I'm the next incarnation of Robin Hood. No, that's not right either. You agreed to the terms of borrowing the money, no? Well, then the same situation happened between the servant and a smaller servant, we'll call them. The scale of the debt was much smaller, and the scale of it is what shows the ridiculousness of the servant not forgiving his other servant. As ridiculous as the story is, it's just as ridiculous for you to be hard-nosed about forgiving your spouse, your family member, your fellow church member, etc. Get that in your mind. I want you to be ashamed 
in your mind when you think, Christ has forgiven me all my sin and I'm not willing to be forgiving toward this person that has done something wrong to me, stubbed my toe in effect, stepped on my feet. You ought to be ashamed because it's ridiculous to think like that. Other servants saw what happened and explained the situation to the king and he was very angry and threw the servant into jail. He was more upset. Listen, he was more upset about the lack of merciful attitude than he was about the money. It wasn't the money. Don't fill that in with it's the amount. It wasn't the money, it's the mercy. It wasn't the money. The lack of mercy just offended the king. He couldn't take it. Matthew 6.15 teaches that if you do not forgive others their sins, then God will not forgive you. Now, at first glance, you think, well, that sounds like works to me, a works-based salvation. If I forgive, I'll get forgiven. The reality is that those who come to God for forgiveness by faith are the ones who know how to receive and give forgiveness. Those who come to God for forgiveness may only temporarily appear to have embraced that forgiveness, but they do not really do so if they demonstrate they can't extend forgiveness to others. They expose their hypocrisy by mistreatment. They're simply giving evidence that they never have really received the gift of God's forgiveness at all. And then it is true that God will not forgive them either. And the same thing in the last verse of the passage where it says, So my, Father, uh, my heavenly Father also will do to you if you from his heart do not forgive his brother his trespasses. God will punish the one who apparently had gladly received his master's forgiveness, but in fact did not appreciate it whatsoever. I guess this is the thing. If you don't appreciate what God has done for you, you won't be able to forgive others. But if you do appreciate what God has done for you, then you will see how ridiculous it is that you've been forgiven an eternity, an everlasting weight of iniquity, an impossible situation that God made possible for you in Christ, if somebody says a bad thing about you to you, does something, you know, is a thief, whatever, that's pretty small compared to what God has done for you. He has forgiven very great offenses. The juxtaposition of the two concepts, punishment and forgiveness, in the same God is jarring to some people, you know, People have these, these views, well, God is all forgiving, he's all love, he's just squishy. Or God is, you know, your God is a harsh, evil judge. He doesn't let us have any fun. Those are so wrong, those conceptions of God. In, in God are both wrath and mercy. In wrath, please remember mercy. Or do you not know the goodness and the severity of God? His goodness leads you to repentance. A very good God could not permit sin to pass by without punishment, nor would he be good if he made his children suffer in the presence of sin and sinners for all eternity. God is like that master, that king in the story. Also, we should note that God cannot dwell with people who are hateful or unforgiving or not merciful themselves. That type of person is assigned to eternal punishment rather than eternal fellowship with God. Look at that verse 35 again. 
So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you, here's the phrase, from his heart. Is your forgiveness from the heart? It's kind of like asking, is your apology from the heart? I'm sorry. You just say, I'm sorry, just to get it over with. You know the feeling, right? Admit it. You're little kids, right? Tell your brother you're sorry for hitting him. I'm sorry. Are you really sorry? Well, no, I'm not really sorry because I really socked it to him, you know. That was a good one. (laughs) How many times are we like that? You know, we don't want to apologize or we don't want to really forgive. Okay, I I know I'm supposed to say I forgive you, so I forgive you, but I'm still going to be mad, at least for a while. we believers must learn this lesson over and over and practice it over and over. Some of us get into a rut where we act like an unbeliever, but we know better. Let us ask God to help us always be ready to forgive and then to actually do so when the need arises. In In the extreme case, an unforgiving person is indeed an unbeliever and will be punished along with all others. Finally, let's turn to Ephesians 4. Verse 32, just to cement this with an epistolary reference here, Ephesians 4, 32. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. We're called to forgive in a way comparable to God, how he forgave us. Our forgiveness obviously can't accomplish what Christ's forgiveness did in terms of eternal consequences, but our forgiveness should be like God's. How? Well, it's readily extended, it's generously offered, it's a forgiveness that's complete, and it's based on the sacrifice of Christ. No sin can be forgiven in this world truly apart from the sacrifice of Christ. The consequences, uh, he dealt with the consequences. You can't really deal with them any other way. There's some sins, by the way, that are really, there's no restitution for them. You know, once somebody's reputation has been blown falsely, you know, slandered, or some, some crime has been done where the, the thing taken away cannot be recovered, a life lost or something that's been destroyed. Um, it just can't be restored. But God can forgive the iniquity of the sin. Now, our, our forgiveness, by the way, sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't get rid of temporal consequences. Classic example of somebody's sin regarding uh, money, then you know, a temporal consequence may be they're not going to be handling the money for a while, if at all, ever. If that's a temptation for them, then it may just be best to take that out of their hands. Uh, and that we understand, I think, without saying, you know, well, you must not be fully forgiving if you're not letting that person go back and handle the money again, whether it's a husband who's mismanaged in the house or a treasurer in the church or, or whatever, um, that consequence remains. And that doesn't mean we're not forgiving. It means we're wise. We're not dumb. We don't want to put somebody in a tempting situation and so on. So we have to keep that in mind as well. True Christians have been forgiven a mountain of sin against God and have been welcomed into God's family as justified saints. And God's children act like their Father in heaven. God's forgiving, therefore we should be too. We've been forgiven so much more than we can count or list. 
we should be ready to forgive an offender against us. What did Christ say? Father, forgive them. P, uh, Stephen, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know, I'm sure Paul had a similar, these guys that are going to kill me after my second imprisonment, they're clueless. God, forgive them. Don't hold this sin against their charge. The professing Christian who does not understand this, does not practice it, thus demonstrates they do not truly understand God's forgiveness. That's the point. The practical challenge for us here is not to intellectually understand what we've studied, is it? That's easy. The difficulty is to do it when we have been hurt, when our hurt consumes us, when we we demonstrate selfishness and not love for others if we don't do that. This is where our heart gets clogged up with self and cannot extend forgiveness to another. That's not godly. And another side to this, I've mentioned this already, we need to know how to apologize and ask for forgiveness. Here's the thing. The two men in the story, did they have any trouble asking for forgiveness? Why not? Because they understood that if they didn't get it, they were going to be in a boatload of trouble. We, we hesitate to ask forgiveness because of our pride, don't we? We don't want to do that. We want, we want to maintain our, our facade or our pride or whatever, not admit that we're wrong. These men, however, knew their desperate need. They had no problem asking for the debt to be forgiven because they understood the consequences. You know, towards God, we have a similar need. But somehow people are blind to that need. They don't recognize the wages of sin as death and God will eternally consign one to hell. If people realized how lost they are, then wouldn't they go begging God for forgiveness? Wouldn't you run to Him? Admit that you're wrong? But we somehow think we can avoid paying our sin debt to God or we can make things toward others go away with time or psychology or whatever. We need to humble ourselves and admit our sin to God and others whom we have wronged. Far better that than carrying around a load of unresolved guilt all the time, both in our relationships with others, but think, think about it with God. So like these men who ask forgiveness of their respective uh, creditors, may we be able to ask God for forgiveness because we know the awful penalty that comes with not doing so. Let us pray. Father, I pray that the gospel of Christ will be an encouragement to us today that you have made in the terms of like this parable, you have made the payment for sin and it's done. And all we must do is appeal to you and you will mercifully forgive us and then help us to be merciful to others. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.